Welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. Uh, I'm Jose. I'm uh, Mike. And today we have a special guest, Stephen Glass. My Hello. brother. Yes, who is crazy about this film. So maybe we should start with you, Stephen. Why, why, why is this such a passion for you? I like. I've, this is the fourth time I've seen it now. I just really like being there. I was a bit unsure for about a week uh, after I saw it the first time. And it was one of those, as soon as you saw it the second time, it just sort of all made sense. I just really like these people, and I keep finding them more interesting, and I just, I really like how it feels, okay. that whole two hours. I would like more of it, but, you know, it's... Well, we might get poisoned first. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, what did you get out of seeing it the second time? I'd, I'd forgotten, obviously the first time I saw it, I'd completely forgotten everything that happens before he meets Alma, where it's actually setting up his life. Yes. Because um, it was only on the second viewing that I realised that... Um, Alma is one of a series of relationships that he's had with, with muses stroke romantic partners Yes. because you see one at the start um, and he says no more squidgy stuff or something like that and she says you, didn't, you never told me that no Maybe, more stodgy stuff no more stodgy and stuff and then the first thing he's eating when Alma's at breakfast is exactly the same pastry and it's right. like That's this right. is kind of how he works but, she also, but then she also says you never told me that Maybe you told someone before me. So that's setting up this thing of, okay, this is a repeated thing that's happened yes. in his life. It's, he's going through these women, yes, um, which I only realised. So that, that changes it for me. Mm. Um, uh, oh, well, that's my fault for not really picking up on it the first time. Yes, I picked up on that because I remember thinking that it's the first time that I've seen... Well, not seen. That in a lo- it's the first time in a long time that I've heard the words confirmed bachelor applied to someone who wasn't gay. Yeah. And so kind of for me, that also kind of implied that, you know, he was someone who was in a series of relationships, but he couldn't commit. And, yeah, that was part of his narrative. This is one of the like I one of the big points that I'm curious to speak to other people about in the film is somewhere between the first and the second time I saw it. Somebody suggested and I disagree with this. They went, oh, it's a film about uh, closet gay. Oh, I don't think that's so all. But what I'm interested in, I don't think that's the case, but I do think it's interesting how the film kind of doesn't... It has a very, very small sexual side. And he's a weirdly kind of asexual guy. He has, a, he has tropes of real masculinity. He drives fast cars, and the moment when she wants to kind of get him into bed works. Although for a second he looks really confused. But I think there's an interesting thing about why the film chooses to not get into the sexuality. I, I kind of, I, I, that doesn't strike me at all, and that certainly was my impression on second viewing. You get the feeling that he is very sexual, and in fact, that he uses his sexuality and his charm as part of the tools of his job, right? That, mm. you know, he's always flirting with these women. And actually, you get the feeling that, like, you know, sex is an option, or has, or, or, or actually, that something has happened between him and some of his older clients. So the first one, especially. Yeah. So I kind of I didn't feel that at all, really. Um, I probably I, agree. I think it's one of those things where it's also a very different kind of um, eligibility. Like yeah. It isn't all about God. He's gorgeous, and I would have sex with him. It. He is a whole package. He's also a certain kind of brand of Britishness that I think is. He's probably the kind of Englishman that taught Americans that British is tantamount to gay. You know what I mean? Because it means refinement and it means... And it means culture and it means yeah. having... I mean, I... But the fact is you could you can have somebody, you can have a guy be secure enough that he's a top dressmaker and he happens to be proper, like, really straight. Well, he's not the only one. There are quite a few, exactly. actually. Though, I, you know, one never knows. Um, certainly there are a few married ones. 
Um, what I love this time around, and that I think goes with that kind of, you know, a sense of security and self-assuredness and, you know, having everything his own way and, you know, which in, in, on the one hand is a kind of autism. Like, the, the film implies that, you know, he's somebody who's on the spectrum, right? Everything has to be just so, everything has to be on a particular order, and that also implies him being closed off in a, in a kind of an internal world, yeah, so kind of, you know, that conversation with his mother and so on, right? Like, so um, I found that interesting, and I found that interesting in relation to the way that Daniel Day-Lewis speaks in a very soft tone. Mm. He speaks low, yeah, the uh, low with a low voice. He almost never raises his voice, in fact, mm. even when he's angry, you know, uh, which I thought was, was quite interesting. The volume always remained understated somehow his voice changes he just he, you notice he gets more gra- he gets drier yes. the course of the, like the start when he orders breakfast it's so smooth mm. later on the real difference is you just hear how like abrasive he gets to Alma because his voice just gets it sounds a little bit worn down mm. um, but yeah he's still like, he can be quiet because nobody needs uh, mm. everybody's quiet around him everybody yes. just does what they do once the wedding dress gets ruined these women just Cyril looks really freaked out almost when she walks in and sees everybody working on the dress and it's like she doesn't quite get the yes. sense of will that this guy's placed over the house even though she's but there's something very strange about the way she looks and what they're doing uh-huh. it feels oddly to me or at least when that when I see that it does feel kind of look at this they, they went straight to it he uh-huh. just he's put this spirit through the house and now they just get straight to it they're quiet they sew do what they do. Hmm. What do you think of the dynamic with the sister? Because that's in a way, yeah, an interruption to that, or an interruption to what? Well, to the sense that Cyril sets the tone for everything and that he's in control of everything. Because actually, I feel that it's true. But on the other hand, the sister's in control of Cyril. The sister is Reynolds. Cyril. Oh, sorry. Uh, the sister's um, in control of Reynolds. Yes. Um, yeah and what's the interruption Alma Alma's definitely an interruption hmm. and there's a power struggle over Reynolds well it's an interesting thing like it, she is an interruption but um, you don't see how much of an interruption the previous girlfriends have been and and, the diff- and what's, what seems to be clear about this one is it, well Cyril clearly likes her she says as much hmm. and and she wants, and when she thinks that Reynolds is going to throw her out, she wants to impart a kind of. She wants him to be kind about it, you know. Don't just ghost her. At least actually make her leave. Yes. Um, and that's probably not the way she's behaved towards any of the any of the previous ones, right? That this Alma Alma is different. Well, she says well, she likes needs, Cyril needs a show of strength, and she gets them from Alma. There's that brilliant moment after you've had the first breakfast in the London house. And Alba makes all this noise and he gets upset and storms out. And um, she gets the last word in and says, look, I still think he's too fussy. And there's the next breakfast scene. She's, Alma is completely quiet, as quiet as the rest of them. And you start on Cyril and she looks around as if she's going, I need to kind of, I need to do the same thing. And what she does is mention Barbara Rose. Hmm. And knowing that the mention of this is going to piss him off. And she yes. does it, and it's almost like going, like, look, we can do the same. I can screw with him too. And he's fine. He doesn't need to be treated with kid gloves like this. He needs to be treated like an adult. And she does it. And there's a great sense of respect between the two of them. Right up to the point where she lets him hang himself at the end by, have it, by letting her walk in, not interrupting. And he 
says these things in front of Alma that he wouldn't say otherwise. And it's like she owes it to her. Like, they both seem to realise this is a bit ridiculous now. He needs to calm down. He doesn't realise that what he's actually got to is kind of love rather than something that's tearing his world apart. Yeah, it's interesting that scene because normally in a scene like that where where one person is listening to another person say something awful about a third person knowing that the third person can hear, that would be an act of cruelty to that third person. And in this case, Cyril is doing Alma a favour by ensuring that she hears the truth from Reynolds. I'm not sure about that. I mean, you could argue that it's the opposite. That in fact, she's letting Alma hang herself. That, yeah, she could have stopped it. But she lets Alma hear. Now, you know, kind of, that ends up you know, helping Alma, but actually the intention is, 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 is to me not at all clear. Well, you certainly know by this point that uh, Cyril is fond of Alma. That's been established by this point. Yeah, but this is the moment where he's asking his sister to get rid of her. Mm. Yeah, and to be fair, they've... Well, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because Alma's threat hasn't, doesn't look like it's come to bother the Cyril part, which is quote-unquote business potentially with this new client because she's going elsewhere, she's been to another house. But she is back at Woodcock and she's getting addressed there. So Alma isn't quite... If the difference was your your work's, fa- your work's terrible now, all the clients are leaving, it would be very obvious. It would be much more clear that most of what she's doing is getting at Alma. But it's interesting how they sort of... They do and they don't deal with whether or not his work I improves s- because I see of Alma's it, involvement. I see it as... A power struggle, right? Where initially Cyril has all the power, then Alma comes in, and she's disrupting uh, not only Reynolds, but Cyril. And actually, there's that moment where the doctor comes in for the first time, and there's, like, the Mrs. Woodcock. Who's the Mrs. Woodcock, right? So, and I think there's no, it's, it's very clear that uh, Cyril likes Alma, and in fact, that they get along, but kind of, you know, it's, it's a thing about power, yeah, and kind of disruptions of power and who's got the power, mm. right? And kind of Reynolds thinks he's got it and Cyril knows she's got it and then Alma comes in, right? Mm-hmm. So so that's kind of worked through uh, the rest of the film. I think in very interesting ways, actually. Yeah, I think it, there was a big thing when The Master came out and it really, like, it just doesn't seem like the interesting part of that film to me that it's, who's the master? Is it is Joaquin Phoenix in charge or is mm. Philip Zimmer or is it actually Amy Adams? And you sort of feel like, for one thing, there's no conclusion. For another, it's far more interesting if you just enjoy the fact that they change constantly. Yes. And people Actually, have different powers over different things. I think, I think one of the things that we, well, that I certainly want to raise in the second podcast, uh, and not that I want to minimize story, because obviously the story is told through visuals, but one of the things that struck me very powerfully this time around is just how beautiful the film is. Mm-hmm. Like, visually, you know, how stunning it is. Uh, there's... I mean, the Chelsea Arts Ball struck me the first time around. But this time, there's that moment where they go from the Alps to the moment where she's descending the staircase into the dinner, mm. right? And yeah. it's just extraordinarily There's beautiful. a shot of snow falling just to have a really nice transition. Yeah. It works. Could you get the snow and you get the red and the... It's like yeah, and then the staircase with the mural behind it. It's just kind of extraordinary, really. Mm. There's also a shot very early on of, of the first, uh, one of the first clients that you see um, wearing the dress that she's been fitted up for and then descending the staircase, staircase and yeah. into a party. And, and those two shots of descending the staircase are like direct lifts from 
40s films yes basically like yes. I know no specific one really but just it's a style of yeah. that sort of shot and it's it's opulent and mm. elegant and it sells wealth and class and beauty and it reminds me a bit of suspicion like it has a Hitchcock kind of feel to it really well, well I said just poisoning in it doesn't yeah it does I'm misremembering okay. oh. I said to Stephen right at the end of the film when, when the credits come up because the credits are done in a very deliberately and knowingly 40s style mm. of, of fading over each other um, and and I said to Stephen Rice at the end, this is like Paul Thomas Anderson's version of Grindhouse, the Tarantino movie, where it's like playing on this old style. Mm. Uh, and, and it's not, I mean, don't get me wrong, it is Very not... different. It's, <laughs> it's, not, it's not going, it's not as sort of gung-ho mm. um, uh, as, as, as Grindhouse. It's making something new out of these stylistic kind of references and, and foundations. Nonetheless, though, it's... It's building on quite deliberately, I think, quite, and, and shots like this really echo. And there's another thing which is was something that I felt the first time I saw it, but didn't really didn't put into words, is that the film feels like a classic Academy ratio film at points. Yes, uh, I, I don't think I don't think it's a it standard is. aspect ratio. It's a little narrower. Uh, it feels like yes, um, but it's not. It, it's not full frame, um, but. And actually, I was watching shots very, very carefully, trying to look for how how this feeling was 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 coming up. And sometimes, particularly in the first half of the movie, shots are framed such that the edge of a door frame in the very, very foreground mm. is is positioned at the right or the left hand side of the screen, or sometimes both, such that you don't really pay any attention to it, and it frames everything else mm. in a in a narrower way, mm. or sometimes. Uh, a shot, you know, a kind of shot reverse shot type setup. Someone will be blocking out so much of uh, the, the the frame that what you're looking at is really a much narrower frame, yes. effectively. The staircase in the house is wonderful for that. Mm. And there's an awful lot of that, and there's also frame with kind of candles and things. So it's not it's not always blocking off parts of the screen, but sometimes it's uh, like the, the the design of the walls inside the house is 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 kind of blue wallpaper with these white vertical. I, I don't know, like just sort of struts or pieces of wood or whatever they are in between that, that end up framing the shot. So although the entire shot is still widescreen, the, a frame is built that is slightly more square within it. And then someone is placed within that. The same is done with door frames and things. So I think that's definitely the case with the, the shot of him sat on the toilet at the end. It seems like, mm. I don't know, I, I'm not saying it's this plan, but it seems funny to me that that shot, which is so weird, and it's one of those things that you never show, it's one of those that... I always find this with Paul Thomas Anderson's films because you don't know where they're going to get to and it's really exciting um, that there's shots that suddenly sort of burn in that much stronger because you didn't realise, oh, we're now here, this is where we've ended up. Mm. The shot of him on the toilet in that in that in in the country house bathroom mm. and she's at his knees, there's two door frames and they're black and it looks like you've set up an old Academy frame. Yeah. But for the, for the shot that shows us this subject matter, which is so weird... This guy sat on the toilet, like, and they're so much in love, and it seems like I'm going to put something so classical with something that's really kind of stretching this further, and you're going with me, and it's it's just a really, really lovely shot, for one thing. Mm. What, I, what I noticed was how much of a um, metteur-en-scene type of cinema this is. So, so the thing that really struck me was how at the very beginning, even when they meet, the light is always on him. Yeah, so mm. she's visible, 
you know, and the image is so beautiful and sharp that it's almost like you see the down on her skin, the little hairs on her face, yeah. Um, but the light is firmly on him. I think and at the like... end of the film, the light is on her. You know, I don't know if you noticed, mm. but it's like her face that's taking the light. And he's kind of, he's clear, he's, he's in focus, you know, but he's outside of the lights. You know, yeah. the kind of, the light is less strong on him than it is on her. And it is almost like a complete reversal that happens just in terms of lighting. I certainly started to notice that when he uh, when he's poisoned for the first time, he spends a lot of time in bed and she closes the curtain to, to uh, you know, let less light in. And... That's almost like seems to be basically when it happens. Then he's on the bed and he's got this five o'clock shadow and he's sweaty and his hair's all over the place and and he's being shot from this very unflattering angle mm. from kind of below him as he's lying back on the bed, and um, it, it's it, he looks unbelievably beautiful at the start of the film. He looks and this beautiful. is the absolute opposite. Like he he's been made to look at his possible his worst. I mean, one of the things part of that. that I loved about the film as a whole and that reminds me of nineteen forty cinema is actually how both of the leads are almost impossibly beautiful. Like, they are beautiful, right? Mm. Uh, I mean, I think she's kind of one of the most gorgeous presences in cinema that I can remember in a long time. The more I see the film, the more I think... The more I... There's, you get beyond any questions of kind of the weirdness of the kind of Munchausen thing. You just go, I, I so, I'm so interested in this woman, and she's so completely gripping. Yes. That, yeah, I, yeah, she's kind of mesmerising. She's placid and supremely strong, right? And and also so open that she gives herself entirely to him, but actually always in this kind of, you know, quiet, quiet way, right? Like, you know, I mean, I'd say she was placid, but she isn't really placid because she's so strong, nobody pushes her around. On the other hand, she waits for things to happen. You know, she doesn't get exercised by things. You know, the way that he gets exercised by everything. Everything rattles him, actually. Um, so I think kind of, you know, the film is so interesting in, 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 in the coming together of uh, those differences, I think. I like the bit where um, we mentioned in the previous podcast where he tells the doctor to fuck off. Yes. And then she pops in and says, I think it's clear he wants you to fuck off. Yes. And I noticed that not only is that continues to be a funny line, but also it's actually done in a funny way where um, the, the camera, the, the, the shot is composed such that Reynolds is lying on bed, sort of in the foreground, horizontally at the bottom of the frame, and the Doctor and Cyril are standing there, and uh, Alma's not in the frame, and she pops into the frame from the right yes. to deliver this absurd line. It's like, it's not only is it a funny line, but it's actually, <laughs> it's used this kind of, hello! <laughs> and that's a key moment, because that's the moment where Cyril loses and, and, and begins to know her place. Right, kind of, you know, there's been a struggle of wills until now where Cyril's thought that she's had the upper hand. She's mm. called the doctor, she's brought him on, mm. he says fuck off, she repeats fuck off. Cyril is now in a different level in the movie. Yeah, mm. yeah she has to leave with the doctor. Yeah, like she, exactly. she dropped a level. Yeah, yeah. so, uh, uh, you know, the, the primary relationship now becomes between uh, Alma and Reynolds. Yeah. Uh, what about the dresses? Because there's been a lot of criticism about the dresses. What's the criticism about? The criticism is that they're ugly. Do you know what? I do think that the Alma wears one and Gina McKee wears one at the beginning, this strange kind of snow white dress, mm. uh-huh. which I don't... With the, I, look, with the cape. I, yeah, it has the sort of... I'm not going to like, begin trying to describe it. I it don't understand. Yeah, it has a cape as well. I don't understand why that's 
put it this way, I couldn't, it's not to my taste, but I also, I don't know what the yes. taste would be. I, well, I, I look ju- at that and I feel like that feels very kind of, that doesn't feel like a woodcock dress, weirdly enough. It feels a bit too ornate. Well, I was just wondering if the film was trying to do something with that, because the thing about the dresses to me is that the color combinations are beautiful. You know, uh, I, yeah, I love the, the, the colors. But then other things just feel so off, like, you know, things don't seem ironed or the backs seem a bit loose or, I mean, this is meant to be couture, right? So it means that, like, everything has to be perfectly in place, right? To the point where he goes and takes somebody's dress out because she's not wearing it properly. And on the other hand, the dresses themselves don't seem quite right. And I wondered if it's deliberate or if it's just like a bad dress designer, right? Because kind of, for it to be deliberate would be interesting because, yeah, there's that whole bit of narrative thing about that he's losing clients, that things come in and out of fashion. You know, I, I think Mike and I talked about how really the only truly famous fashion designer, British fashion designer in this period, uh, is Norman Hartnell, right? Who, yeah, I think it's generous to say that we talked about that. I don't know anything okay, about I that. talked about it. So, who, you know, who's not remembered in the same way and who doesn't have the same fame or acclaim as Dior or Balenciaga or people of that period. So I wondered if the film was doing something deliberate with that, but making him not quite a great dressmaker, not quite a great couturier, mm. right? I don't know. Yeah. So... I mean, not to derail it, I just don't know that. I, I know nothing about fashion. It seems to me that the film is certainly trying to portray him as as um, someone with next to no parallel. I mean, not, not as a kind of genius beyond all others, mm. but someone on the top level. I mean, royalty comes to visit him yeah, and yeah. get dress after dress after dress made by yeah, him. Yeah. He's a top couturier. Mm. There's no question about that. Yeah. It's uh, interesting, though, how he's not related to the rest of the world, but then it's sort of... It's one of those things that... Um, if you wanted to show that, you'd kind of be cheating the way that the story's told. I, he strikes me as somebody that... The reason why we don't hear about the fashion world is because I don't think he wants to be interested in it. Well, I mean, I, he talks I don't know. About, I mean, I'm just he, thinking... he talks a good game about being strong and I don't need to be reliant on anybody else. And everything he says, the absolute opposite is true. And I think part of him being absolutely fixed in this house is he's terrified of... I, I don't think he's somebody that could bear to talk to other dressmakers. Well, there is but, a but that's I think, so I think he's lucky in as much as the only time he'll notice when people that he's not popular anymore is when clearly somebody's going elsewhere. And I reckon the reason he knows somebody's going elsewhere is I think that woman at the end, who he gets pissed off at, is asking for changes to the dress, which he obviously knows somebody else does. So I think he knows other people. It's almost like somebody, um, you know, if you, if you had a filmmaker that was denying, that was being accused of, you're clearly like this person, and they went, I've never seen their work, but obviously they're obsessed with it. Well... He's got this whole conversation about what is chic? You know, I hate that term. I don't know what it means, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, kind of... And bear in all mind... The rest of his, all the rest of his contemporary couturiers would have been chic. Dior was chic. Balenciaga was chic. There is he a... doesn't have chic. Well, no, and you could see it in the dresses. But there he is... talks about that he wants beautiful. He wants it's right because it's right because it's beautiful. He wants but it's only right because timeless. he says so. And there is a copy of Vogue in the house, don't forget. Like there's some there is some there's not a complete alienation from uh, the yeah. from the, the doctor's um, reading a copy. Yeah, the doctor's reading probably Vogue. why he hates the doctors. Well possibly. But it's not total alienation from the rest of the fashion world. He must he can't he can't be the kind of such a reclusive genius that he can't engage at all. And obviously he knows as he say of the fashion designers, when when the woman says uh, or rather when Cyril says so and so is leaving and or he's outraged by it, whatever it is, and he says, Where's who's she gone to? And Cyril doesn't say, but like he he wants to yeah. know. 
you know, I, agree. Of, I reckon it's one of those things in the end where what it is is we get enough of a sense that he's successful at what he does so that we can get by and tell the real meat of the story, which is the relationship, because it's not really, it's not necessary to know that he maybe has problems with the rest of the fashion world. He's successful, he's in charge, that's the thing. Um, the one thing that did strike me about the fashion, which, because as I say, I know nothing about fashion, the dresses look fine to me. That's, I mean, they look like posh dresses, that's all I know. Um, the one thing that did strike me, though, is is fashion to me is kind of, or that type of fashion, um, it is all about being seen in photographs and you're seen wearing such and such and maybe maybe you're being seen on the red carpet being asked by Joan Rivers who are you wearing or mm-hmm. well Joan Rivers will be taking the piss but um, but there, there are a couple of moments where the dress, dresses are touched and fiddled with in a way that's like you think these in my mind these things are kind of trophies you don't really think about them being actually physical objects that are worn and, and engaged with so there's the point there's the one point early on where Alma is wearing the dress that she's not a a fan of the material and she's she's kind of playing with the pleat in the dress she yes. doesn't like it and then obviously there's um, what, what's her name the, the drunk woman Barbara Rose there's Barbara Rose uh, who you know is treating her dress like absolute crap and she's wiping her mouth with it and ruffling it up and yeah. and is, there's this kind of physical and both of these times Reynolds is very unhappy yes well let, let's move as I, I mean my own feeling is that you know, the film actually, in those ways, to me, also references how so often the dresses are not quite right. Yeah, Elma says so several times. She changes his dresses. You know, there's the dress of that Belgian princess that, you know, you look at and, uh, um, and with that wedge uh, and on the bust line. So I, I'm just wondering if there's something there. But... I don't want to talk about it now because we have 15 minutes and I want to get to your feelings about the main theme of the film. Like this woman has to poison this man in order to get him to lie down, open up and love her. <laughs> this so, is one thing that I wanted to ask both of you about because I, I haven't seen anywhere that talks about this. The actual very, very end of the film mm-hmm. where you realise like, okay, I, the whole framing of this is Alma and it's this very like yes. gothic which I can only talk about really from Frankenstein but Frankenstein is you know one person is telling the story that somebody else told them that somebody else told them recently they did it with Grand Budapest right Alma's telling this story to the doctor yes mm. that's the framing presumably maybe possibly because he's figured something out or whatever maybe it's a confession and you get to the end and when you're in this sequence where you see that they're working together now she has that you suddenly realise that what he's been coming up against and what has been there the whole time is this weird sort of cosmology she has about I'll see him again I don't need to worry about this I'll take care of him and all I need to do is be patient and I'll see him again and there's this very that suddenly she comes into her own and you feel like there's a there's a mysticism that's in Paul Thomas Anderson's films especially you find it in The Master um, and Inherent Vice which I really really like um, because I think he's a realist but I think he's somebody that really enjoys you know there's the sort of Rain of Frogs in Magnolia, and I think there's yeah. something very interesting about this thing. This these the way that they deal with curses and ghosts, mm. and you almost feel like at the end, what she seems to be is she's this spirit that is in love with him because being in love with him makes life no great mystery, which I cannot figure out. But it's almost well, like if I can have a routine and that involves loving that spirit, then that's what I do. You almost feel like the mother spirit passed into her because he senses the mother being close at the beginning. And after he notices Alma, he suddenly takes this moment and he's very unsure. 
and then we're into their relationship and you sort of feel like she has this very strange way of seeing the world and way of seeing love and it's this strange spiritual timeless thing that that obviously informs the way she's acted the whole time what do you mean about the uh, when you said the I'll see you again but I'll see him again when she's talking she at, when she's she talking at the end she says look end. if he doesn't wake up this time oh in the afterlife I'll see him again yeah. in, mm. the, in, this, in this life or the next life or That's the right. next life yeah. um, it's exactly like the, the song that play. I couldn't help but notice there's a song that plays at the end of the master when obviously the master and Freddie have split up mm. and they've talked mm. about I'll see you in the next life and the cause is all about new lives mm. and the song is called Changing Partners and it's about two people dancing obviously at a ball and they change partners and it's, I'll see you again, we'll come round and I'll dance with this mm. partner now. Right, right, right. And you go, this is exactly the same thing. This seems to be something about how he sees love, yes. which is, it's actually a state of coming into and out of love and maybe it transcends time and space and it's... Well, I don't know, when she says... I like it, I think it's romantic. It's very strange. Well, I, I think I, it's, I, it's such a great sweep I think, towards I the think end. it's very well, romantic. There's certainly an element of, there's, there's a real tinge of people who are meant to be with each other no yeah. matter what. Yeah, and yet at the same time it comes with, I'll just be patient because it's there. No, but also because of who, what his character is like. Yeah, you know, so he'll find her. Yeah, and he is predictable. He needs yeah. his routine, right? And then what happens is he gets so caught up in routine that you know he goes off into another space and that's when she poisons him right that's when he wants him open and on his back mm. and receptive yeah and then to get well again she so she takes care of him and then he gets well again so when she says loving him is no mystery i think that's partly what she's referring mm. to right that's what i think is interesting about the the omelette scene at the end is that there's enough mushroom in there to kill him it's like she's going you either prove now that you're properly strong yeah. and you'll figure this out in the next five minutes before you eat this and die or I'm not worth your time yes. anymore. Now I'll actually leave. Because <laughs> midway through the film, she doesn't leave. No. She sticks around and she sort of thinks he's worth the time to yes. I love that settle scene. him down again. <laughs> I love that, that he knows, right? And he does it, which is another kind of romantic gesture, right? She's willing to die for him. He's willing to die for her. He smiles when he figures it out. Yeah. And you're like, you're so, like he, the audacity of it so appeals to him. And it ties in with the other themes of the film, of hiding things and the lining of clothes. Yeah, that kind of... You know, that words or images have a mystery when they're next to you or something. Yeah, they're hidden, but mm. there, right? So but she, it's also a thing of he has a dialogue. You mentioned this, did you not? He, he's dialoguing with himself. Yes. Because he sews and she takes out the never cursed. Yes. Which seems to, and then next scene is where she crosses over with the mother ghost and you're going, it's kind of right there. It's yes. not like the thing isn't complicated, but he gives you things in a very clear way. Yes. Look, there's a, a mother, there's a ghost of the mother, and now his girlfriend walks in. Mm. There's certainly a fairy tale aspect. There's a real fairy tale thing hanging over, and there's part of the superstition aspects and the idea of being cursed and the and the ghosts. Um, there's also, um, I mean, it's funny that you said earlier about the, a couple of the dresses looking like Sleeping Beauty dresses, mm. because I thought um, that there's or Snow White, whichever one it is. Oh, Snow White, sorry. Um, but be- between. Uh, Alma and Reynolds, it's Beauty and the Beast. She's invited into his house, and this is, this is I mean, I don't remember most of the Beauty Yeah, he's a proper kind of... prince that was like doing everything, <laughs> and now he's an asshole. And, um, and, and, and also, I mean, poisoning is in every bloody Grim Brothers tale. Yes. Um, well, he literally goes to the countryside at the beginning and finds this woman who's yeah. in the countryside who, like, comes back to the city and goes, All right, I'll bring proper logic and, like, my well, proper wisdom 
I live in the woods and this is how we do things. We, mm. we have spells and I'm going to curse the bride to get rid of her. Like, you're mine. If yeah. you, you played with this and now you'll get it. Yeah, so I think of words have power. I think of don't wish a bride good luck or whatever it is. Yes, and you she know, wishes... It's a okay. magic spell, right? Mm. I think there's definitely that element, which is what makes the film seem like, well, well, like one of those 1940s gothic films, like Suspicion, you know. So not haunted house gothic. Mm. But you know, previous wife poison gothic. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's really confident and audacious and that sort of thing, and I really respect that. Yes, right. it's 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 one of those, it's so it's one of the things that I, I um, like about Christopher Nolan as well, although it's handled very differently in Nolan films. I think he doesn't have the deafness of touch in Interstellar when he has uh, um, what's the toothy woman? Jessica uh, Chastain. No, 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 the. The one who's Catwoman. Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway. When he has Anne Hathaway say, you know, she literally says, like, the the, the other variable is love, love and love is love space. is a constant in the universe. You're like, fuck it, I get this, okay? But it's so earnest, and I really love that. Someone really putting themselves on the line and opening themselves up in, in, in their art. Mm. Um, and I think that's... Because, because when you do that, like... It becomes very easy for people to stab you where you know where you're, where you're really vulnerable, and I think Phantom Thread really feels the same way. Although obviously everything that it's doing in that respect is handled so much more deftly, mm. and uh, it's 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 less kind of obviously easy to mock. Mm. Um, but you know maybe maybe that's why I love Nolan slightly more even because when someone is that clumsy. <laughs> We, I really respect that. We have five minutes, so um, let's move the discussion on from Nolan and talk about the sound. There you go. Well, it's one of the things that everyone's mentioned about the film. Does that include yeah. the music? Sorry? Does, it, does that include the music? The music? Yes. No, I'd like to... Well, I'd like to discuss the sound, the absence of sound, and then kind of the score, yeah. So um, I think kind of it's all incredibly uh, interestingly used. Go on. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, obviously, you know, the first thing that struck me was, you know, that sound is made humorous, right? So making everything seem too loud at the beginning in the way that it irritates someone, yeah? Mm. And then kind of next when she's doing the toast, it's no longer sound. Then later on in the film, you know, you get the sound back just, you know, so she can needle him, right? But then there are moments at um, the uh, Chelsea Arts Ball where the say. sound just kind of leaves really you know it's a really graceful uh, thing and I think it's part of what lends the whole thing Inherent Vice has a similar thing where enough is dealt with in a very gentle way where you don't realise that's what's making the whole thing feel a little bit mm. dreamlike's one of those really horrible words but for the purposes of the conversation dreamlike same thing when he goes to the country yes. in the beginning and he's speeding along in the car yes. and you go that's a sound thing yes. but it's just this very sort of soft piece of piano music that's playing yeah. and it's really nice to play those two against each other that's right. I love that at the Chelsea Arts Ball yeah. when the New Year's party once we're in it and walking through it yeah, it goes quiet and yes. the Alma theme plays. Yes. And then he goes and takes her. Yes. And you were like uh, moving your fingers along with the score through quite a lot of the film, I noticed, Mike. And that's because, yeah, a couple of the themes are, um, uh, yeah, I've been listening to the soundtrack a bit, a couple of the themes are really memorable, the House of Woodcock theme, the Phantom Thread theme. Mm. Phantom Thread theme comes back in sort of three or four different versions. There's a kind of, there's a string version, a piano version, and then a full orchestral version. And there's, uh, during the... Um, the, the omelette scene towards the end, it comes in with the huge dramatic orchestral version that's played mm. twice. The one that feel like, oh my God, like mm. things are happening. Mm. And and it finishes and it's immediately followed by the much softer piano version. Like, mm. 
and this is this is at the time that he's worked out that uh, Alma is the one who poisoned him and that she's going to do it again. And so this this dramatic moment of realization and confrontation you, you feel is going to happen, because um, the scene is almost entirely wordless. It certainly is for a long, long time, uh, and it's just done through looks and 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 cutting back and forth between the two of them. Mm. Uh, and, and so the music is huge and dramatic, and then when it comes in with the softer version, that tells you everything you need to know mm. about about how Reynolds is going to respond mm. to this now. You know, like, the, it, it becomes a thing of love rather than confrontation, and it's done through the theme of the film mm. being played in a different mode. And the really great bit where you go, this is one of the things that I love about Paul Thomas Anderson. It's like he's got real taste and grace and delicacy is you get that big version that sounds, sounds like the start of Barry Lyndon with the, like, uh, kettle drums... And that's happening when she's frying the butter and everything's bubbling up. Mm, and then yes. she pours the eggs in and the pan goes quiet and the music goes quiet. And you mm. go, that's just great like <laughs> filmmaking that goes, that goes quiet. And it's a really nice moment to punctuate the whole thing. And the kitchen's going to get quieter. Music comes down and then everything gets very delicate. It's like that kind of stuff is just, that's somebody that is looking at what they're looking at and is just very gentle about and delicate about knowing how to change the mood of a scene. I just think it's it's really good filmmaking. The first time I saw the film, uh, I thought what I've seen a few people write uh, about music, which is basically that it's a little heavy-handed. Um, it underscores a vast majority of the film, or certainly a vast majority of, of kind of kind of big moments, I suppose. Um, that's what I felt the first time, just because it's so noticeable and it's got themes that you recognise, and that that so you pick up on it. But the, but the second time I watched it just now, I thought, no, that's just... I want it. Actually, it, it is kind of lush, and it is big at points, but that's exactly what I want, you know? Mm. And I, I, it's you can luxuriate in the music. And and it's it's a really beautiful score. There's some real the, the creativity in in the music and the way that it's played and the way that notes kind of linger or repeated, the, the kind of sort of thing that happens with the piano is gorgeous and enticing and weird and... Ugh. Okay, <laughs> we've got only two more minutes. She's so been counting down I, like can I ask fucking Alex Ferguson. Yeah. What bar? Nobody's talking about the Barbara Rose section, and I love the Barbara Rose section. What do you think of Barbara Rose? What use is Barbara Rose and like that section with Barbara Rose and her wedding and the man, the press conference? I think she's based on is it uh, the Woolworth heiress? It was also Barbara something. Hutton. Hutton. I've heard of this yeah, name. Yeah, that's right. Name, but I don't so it was, it was uh, Barbara Hutton who married Cary Grant, and then I think she also married Porfirio Ruby Rosa or some, some you know, one movie, of those. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So I think that's that's definitely meant to kind of connote her, and she was like one of the richest women in the world, and mm-hmm. you know, and she had problems, and yeah. But what do you think of it? You're wasting your two minutes. Uh, that set the, 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 the say the section him getting pissed off and then taking the dress I think the thing. film is a bit cruel to her or, or the moment where they take off the dress feels to me too cruel uh, so, so I think the film is actually kind of a bit empathetic to her there's that bit in the interview section where they say you know kind of uh, uh, what, what does he see in you and she says Respect, I think. Sincerity. Sincerity, yeah. right. Um, so, you know, which kind of, in a way, touched my heart, really, because, you know, you could see what he saw in her was like the millions in her bank account, right? But what she hopes he saw in her is sincerity. So on the one hand, the film treats her sympathetically, 
but on the other hand, makes her like mm. a little bit the object of. Oh, she she's is funny. she's a figure of fun. She's funny. She's yeah. a drunk, and she's you know kind of not the greatest looker. With the best one in the world. Which is the interesting that. thing is that, you're, is that. that you see yeah. have a character come so. in who, what if there's a woman, if women are here to be dressed, what if there's a woman that isn't considered attractive and she's having such a hard time with mm. it? Yeah, but I think, that, I think that you're right to say that the film, the film actually treats her for the most part, I think, with a, a certain amount of tenderness or, yes. or, yes. or empathy. Like when, I'm thinking of the, the shot from far away when she she gets drunk at the dinner, the mm-hmm. wedding, and her she collapses onto the table. Like, I felt bad for her. And actually, I've, at that point, Reynolds and Alma, are they're acting like fucking mobsters. Yes, they you are. Know? And they are, they are not sympathetic at that point. Yes. Although it ends up being kind of entertaining and interesting yeah. that this energises their relationship and they make yes. out. Yes. Like, it, it's, it's still not... It, you're not really on their side at that point, yes. I think. Or you shouldn't be. Yeah. No, and I think that kind of solicitation of those that that change in perspective on the characters is really beautifully done and very complex and very characteristic of the film actually. it's done really nicely over that question yeah. of what happened about can you tell us about selling visas to the Jews during the war yes and they literally put in it feels like it's like it's really simple sound design over a shot of Alma they literally have someone go visas Jews visas Jews and yeah. they're like it's right there something's going on yeah, yeah. she's not quite gangster there's like, that feels a bit much there's something there that says you don't you actually don't deserve this dress there's a weird relationship both of them have with money she's obviously come from Eastern Europe or from Europe mm, no no I think she's meant to be an American heiress the thing about no the no music- I mean Alma Ah yes, 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 and the son, yes, and yes. the fact that the two are so uncomfortable. I just, something yes. keeps creeping into my head about the yes. both of them having a kind of immigrant background because he has. Well, this she weird, clearly does. Right? Alexander McQueen is a dress designer who had the same thing. Like he had such disdain uh. for the upper class, and yet they're the only people who are going to buy what he made. Yeah, well, and it's yeah. a weird paradox you put yourself in where you can just live angry. Yeah, yeah. and be creative, but yes, or you're kind you of know, punishing yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, we have to wrap up now, Mike. Yeah, oh, we've gone two and a half minutes over, Jose. Whatever are we going to do? I've got to cook. Do you want to hear? Do you want an interesting bit of trivia before yes. I go? Anyway, since you mentioned sewing, into, I was reading about Alexander McQueen a while ago because there was an exhibition in London. That's right. Story it. goes that he either sewed or wrote in Byron. He was working on the lining of a coat for Prince Charles. He was an assistant, and he wrote, "I am a cunt." Oh, a penis. I heard that. You I, heard this, right? Yeah, I have heard that. Yeah. Maybe that's where they got the inspiration. Do you think anyway, Prince Charles has found that coat. It probably what it's probably just a story. He probably, it's probably made it real, himself, actually. But, you know. Um, but anyway, uh, one of the one of the things that we should probably end up by saying is that the film is very much worth seeing. See it, and kind of you know put some effort into seeing it. It, it repays the effort, and it's kind of disconcerting that you know these great movies have been playing for so little time. So today, we have to go see it in the middle of nowhere in the Birmingham International Airport to actually be able to see a second screening, mm-hmm. right? It's already not playing the major cinemas in town. So, you know, if, if, you, if it is showing around, you do make an effort to see it. Yeah, or, you know, download a screener illegally. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Let's go. <laughs>